So hi everyone, I am at the Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center today, as I have been for a couple days actually, on one of their pursuit groups um, with a bunch of my colleagues. And I'm here talking to Margaret Palmer, who is the director of SysInc. And Dr. Palmer is also a distinguished university professor at University of Maryland College Park. So in a prior episode of this podcast, I was interviewing uh, Larry Crowder from mm -hmm. Stanford. And we were talking about his kind of transition from doing fundamental or, or, or basic ecological science. And then he, he did some work on, on sea turtle ecology. And that really got him interested in conservation. And that led to him being involved in several interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary projects. I mentioned that in part because, at least superficially, it sounds similar to some of the processes that you've gone through in your own career. So I'd love to just hear about your work on streams, on you know, aquatic ecosystems, et cetera, mm -hmm. kind of maybe even what got you into, into that in the first place before we take a, uh, a step into thinking about how do you go from there to t working with natural resource users and managers, et cetera, based on what you saw in the ecology? Sure, sure. So it's funny, I you know, I've often been asked, why did you become a scientist? Why do you do what you want to do? And I think there's this idea, which I think is a myth, that people, you know, I loved nature when I was a kid, and then right. I was compelled to do this. I've often talked about how the path that my career has taken is sort of um, um, invented as it goes along. Okay. Uh, life is an improvisation. And yeah, yeah. I think the one thread that goes through all of it is I love to learn about new things. And that is in part, I think, one of the reasons I've done many different things during my career. My PhD is actually in coastal oceanography. Right. And um, so I worked in those kind of systems for a while. Why did I get involved in that? Probably because I got a summer fellowship to Woods Hole when I was an undergraduate and got intrigued. Right. But my first faculty position was a little teaching college in Indiana. And after being there, you know, a couple of years and going to the coast, one of the other coasts every summer, I said, you know, I really should learn something about inland waters. Yeah, okay. So I wrote an NSF grant and got, got that and went to Maryland, which is where David Allen was, who was mm -hmm. a well-known stream ecologist, to see if we could apply some of the theories learned in marine systems on boundary layer flows and dispersal of organisms to streams. So that's how I made that transition, and I just fell in love with streams and rivers and never left that. So anyway, after yeah. I went to Maryland to work with Dave Allen for a couple of years on that grant, they offered me a position, and I ended up moving there. Okay. And then the big transition, I think, which was much more focused on both policy and applied, was... I began to recognize I was having to drive further and further from the College Park campus mm -hmm. to find a so-called pristine, least impacted stream. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we're in a major metropolitan area here around Washington, D.C., and the stream's in really bad shape. So I decided I should figure out, you know, if there was something we could do about that. Right, okay. And so I started getting into the area of restoration ecology. And stream and river restoration. And that was, I was very deep into that from the hydrology and ecology side. I worked mm -hmm. with, you know, a lot of interesting people. But it became clear to me that after a while, it really wasn't a lack of science that was impeding restoring streams and rivers. Mm -hmm. It was the social dynamics. Right. And so, for example, some of the work I've done in Maryland, some of my earlier work on stream restoration, I worked with managers in the sense that they would talk to me about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. I would get heads up on sites so I could get, begin sampling. But it wasn't at all like any sort of cooperative <laughs> research at that okay. point. Are these government officials or these like these local are, technicians? So, well, the way it typically works in restoration is often the government or some nonprofit will pay for the restoration, but they almost always hire an engineering or consulting firm to do the work, to right. drive okay. the bulldozers and do the designs even. So that's really who you need to work with is those that are designing it and implementing it. Okay. And... Um, a lot of that, the research that came out of that, and it was mostly Chesapeake Bay work looking at, for example, nitrogen dynamics with mm -hmm. my close colleague, Solange Filoso, showed that these projects weren't really 
accomplishing what they were being touted as accomplishing. Okay. That was not well received. Okay. By sure. anybody really, by the, you know, the practitioners that were doing the projects, by the agencies that were funding it. So, you know, they really saw me as a thorn in their side. And what I I of course now understand really well is that if you don't co-design, co-produce, and engage those people all the way along the way. Yeah. There's no sense of ownership. So they actually questioned the legitimacy of the data, right. which was shocking to me. So anyway, one more example of where the social dynamics and the research process had to be much more interdisciplinary than, say, hydrologists and ecologists and geomorphologists. Right. It really has to include uh, stakeholders and um, those that are actually doing the project and and they're really committed good people but you have to get them engaged so that sort of was a big turn i think i mean do you do you think that they kind of saw you as an outsider who was kind of coming in and kind of attacking what they were doing absolutely absolutely and they would say things like well we know it's working we're there we see it right and of course my stance was well here's the data you know so right interesting learning experience so i would say my engagement in that arena, along with work, I, and I, if you're interested, I can talk about it, how I got pulled into working with <clears throat> lawyers from a nonprofit that I've been working with for about 10 years in West Virginia hmm. on um, mining, the impacts of mining on streams and rivers. Yeah, that'd be great. I, I will say I, I watched the Colbert Report uh, snippet, yeah. so... And we can we can post that to the episode too if if you like. Sure. But I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a lot of fun. I had a, a lot of fun doing that. Yeah. So the way that happened, well, where I was going before was to say, my research, my work in restoration and recognizing the social dynamics combined with my work with with mining and lawyers, is what led me to to seek out other like-minded people mm-hmm. like my colleague here, Jonathan Kramer to propose a place like Succinct. So we can get back to that. But in terms of the mining work, um, that came about, again, it's the serendipity. Life is an improvisation where Mm. I was sitting in my office one day and I got a call. And, you know, when you work on streams and rivers, you get tons of calls to help, for example, um, you know, watershed groups. And you you can get overwhelmed doing service. So you have to pick and choose. But this was from a a legal um, researcher with this nonprofit, and she wanted me to talk to her about what it means to restore a, a stream. Beca- Just so she could learn, basically? Well, or? no, because she and the, the nonprofits she was working with were putting in um, basically challenging permits that the Army Corps of Engineers was giving two coal companies, okay. two mountaintop mine in the southern Ap- south-central Appalachians. Okay. And the if you're not familiar with the, the legal aspects on this, basically you can fill a stream and destroy it just like you can a wetland. You simply have to have a permit to do it. And the way you get those permits is typically to propose some way to offset those impacts. Okay. And so it's a it's a really thorny process where mm-hmm. um, a regulator like the Army Corps or a state agency will look at what you're proposing to do. They'll estimate the impacts. They have this I actually call them voodoo credit system, <laughs> ecological okay. credits like right. losses and credits. And then it's what, like a cost benefit analysis kind of thing. Or it, it is. It okay. is using metrics to assess the status of the ecosystem. And they the, they were getting a, a lot of proposals, seeing a lot of permit requests where restoration of a stream and river was to offset destroying one completely. Right. And the what was being done for that, I put quotes around restoration because they call it that, was typically taking a drainage ditch on a mine site and reconfiguring it a little bit maybe so it has more curves Mm -hmm. adding some some different size rocks so that it had the same you know particle sizes that a natural stream does in the area and sometimes even lining 
the bottom of the stream was something so it would hold water. <laughs> and so they called this, this was stream creation, basically. And I had never heard of this. And that was the offset. That, that was, was the, the offset. That was called, that was restoration. And um, it turns out that even nothing, very few things can live in that because you get drainage off the old mine site when it's finished, which makes the water toxic it basically has all yeah. these ions in it that that the organisms can't osmoregulate and so forth. in this new like created stream in this created yeah. stream okay and they were getting full credit for this i couldn't believe it i mean it reminds me also of some of the discourse around carbon credits that people when people are concerned about that i you know one of the arguments i hear is well if you're kind of allowing people to continue to do these bad things, if they kind of somehow make up for it somewhere else, but they're still kind of – we're kind of enabling some of this bad behavior. I do think that there is um, – and some philosophers have written about that idea that mm. um, these sort of these myths around mitigation um, do enable. <laughs> yeah. The belief that we can just make up for anything we do – Everything's is, fungible. – is just false mm -hmm. and – in the case you mentioned, you know, carbon credits and all, wetlands for carbon credits, you know, created wetlands. There's been a number of studies that have showed they don't function in the same way, even mm -hmm. if they have some of the same plant species. So anyway, I ended up <clears throat> agreeing to provide them with advice, and then eventually that turned into expert testimony. Okay. And during that process... Um, we put together a lot of data, and most of it actually was from the state agencies that gather routine water quality data. It's like EPA. Yeah, except okay. this would be at the state level, like right. West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. And right. um, their own data, you know, in the state showed that, you know, biologically and chemically, these were not really adequate, these streams that were getting full credit. Okay. So anyway, I probably testified in many... Many case, many court, um, federal court cases, and I have to give the credit solely to these really dedicated people at the Appalachian Advocates. It's called. It's mostly lawyers, and um, we won most of these. One was reversed in an appellate federal court. One decision, a big decision, on um, this was this was back in like oh seven or oh eight um, when. That district, the Huntington district, um, the federal system was one of the most conservative in the country. It's no longer like that. Anyway, long story short, today, largely I think because natural gas is so abundant, there's not that much. No, there aren't many new permits going in. Okay. So we, what we continue to do now is try and force coal companies that have old mines that are supposedly have been reclaimed, but they're still violating clean water mm -hmm. permits, uh, NPDES permits, they're called, to actually clean that up and stop that. So okay. anyway, okay, yeah. long story short of it was we published a paper based on a lot of that, the data we put together, and my colleague Emily Bernhardt, um, who was great, she's at Duke University as a professor, was my postdoc years ago, helped a lot on that, and... Um, Made a big splash, not just with Colbert, but we got to speak to Senator Byrd from West Virginia, oh. and for and how was that? His staff actually excellent. His staff totally agreed with us, and before he died, he ended up reversing his views on mining and saying West Virginia needed to end this. Now, did we cause that? No, but I think a growing awareness of the problems and public pressure probably helped mm -hmm. plus he was dying people right. often come clean <laughs> when yeah 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 so those kinds of experiences you know and also being in the courtroom and learning how the system works it's you know our laws are based on what the people want they're not based on science and so the mm -hmm. social issues are really critical sure yeah okay i mean so a lot of that seems to reflect what you initially said, which is, it's. I mean, it sounded like you almost kind of got pulled into some of these things. You you took one step, and then someone kind of said, "Hey, how about this, etc." Which I think intuitively, a lot of us understand that that's kind of how life works. And when you you know what I what I really liked that you started this conversation with was you know it's not like there was some grand plan that you just said, "Okay, I've got the ten steps, and I'm just going to check yeah. them off like one a year, <laughs> yeah. and then voila, perfect career." 
Because I feel like when folks are starting out, there is this kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, hero mythology where it's, you know, you were destined to do this. And then they see other people and we kind of compare our insides to their outsides and we think, oh, well, they, they did this and then this and now they're here. And it can look like to, um, to each one of us that other people did have this kind of hero mythology yeah. process that goes on. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, it's challenging for folks because it's kind of like, well, if I want to get to where they are, I have to kind of do it all at once. I can't kind of bumble my way through and have bad days and just have days where I'm questioning myself. I mean, those aren't advertised by anyone. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, I've certainly, you know, when people ask me, like, why did you go to grad school? I mean, part of my answer is it seemed like a reasonable next thing to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I loved it. Yeah. But it wasn't like I had, you know, in... I didn't think to myself, well, I need to be a professor or I can't be happy, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's I'm sure there are some people who lay out a plan and right. follow it. But I, I think you're right. I think most of us don't do that. And it's it's good not to, if possible, simply because if you don't get to step two or step three during the time frame you wanted to or thought you would, you feel like a failure. And, yeah. And I think the other thing is opportunities come along. Yes. And anytime you begin to think like, I'm stuck here, this is, is this what I want to do? Something typically, in my, my experience has been something comes up, something happens. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes the hard part is deciding which of those things to say yes to and which sure. not. So, for example, now I say no to most uh, invitations to give talks at universities, not because I don't think it's important, mm -hmm. but because I've made a decision. I have X amount of what I would call service time. Right. And I want to make sure I spend that the way I, I want to. When opportunities come up, I want to be free to do things. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another kind of psychological challenge that must get um, more challenging as you kind of get more well-known and more in demand is, you know, the, the need to flex kind of your no muscle. I feel like a lot of us feel like we, we need to kind of be everything to everyone or be able to kind of make a whole bunch of people happy. And I think it can be challenging, you know, if you don't, if you don't kind of have the muscle that can responsibly say no, so I, for myself, you know, when I get stressed, it's because I've said yes to too many things and suddenly I'm not doing a very good job at like a lot of those yep, things. Yep. I think you're right. I, it's funny. I had with a, some colleagues a number of years ago, I think I was still associate professor, were asked to meet with some brand new faculty to talk to them about a variety of things. And one of the things that always comes up is time management. Yeah. One of the other senior faculty said, and this I've always remembered this, is you're going to get asked to do a lot more than you can possibly do. It's, it is going to happen. It's built in. It's built in. Yeah. And so what you've got to do is decide which is really important. And if you really have to do something that isn't at the top of your list, but you need to, let's say for a political reason, a dean yeah. asked you, just feel okay about not doing it great. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. you know, call okay. oh, sure. in. Yeah. And That's you, hard. It is hard. But if, if you really realize why you're doing it so right. that you have more time for those important things. And I thought yeah. that was great. Don't feel guilty, you know. Right. <laughs> Do something that's good enough and kind of go on to the next thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I also think, I mean, the kind of thing you're doing right now with this interview, this mm. is really important. My guess is you're not going to get any benefits of this, like from your campus. or. I don't think it counts as a bean in that mach bean exactly. machine. Exactly. Yeah. And yet it can do two things. One, first of all, is important. It helps a lot of people. But it it must also be fulfilling to you at some level. I, mean, I love doing this. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, don't forget about that because we, a lot of us went into this kind of, for lack of a better word, life of the mind, but because mm -hmm. we found it satisfying, but we also want to do things that are socially beneficial. Yeah. I mean, the way I've, I've started to understand it in my own mind is, when I first did fieldwork in rural New Mexico for my PhD, I just got... I, I fell in love with the place. I really developed like a place attachment as we talk about it. But I, I and part of that, a lot of that came from these just long uh, interviews I did with these farmers there. And mm -hmm. I just really loved connecting with people. And I realized that I had kind of gotten away from some of that stuff. <laughs> that happens the further that up you go. Yeah. I, and yeah. I was just, and I was like, I want to get back to doing some interviews where I really feel like I'm connecting with someone 
and not viewing it so exclusively as populating a row in a data sheet, which of course is important, et yep. cetera. But it, to me, that had kind of crowded out some of the emotions that accompanied my initial motivation to get into the field. And I've started to think of these as kind of artisanal interviews. Where you, really, you know, it's like craft-based <laughs> yeah. as opposed yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, a more productivist approach where you kind of get, get your data. Yeah, yeah no, that's interesting. Um, and I, I, can, I can definitely sympathize with you. I, sometimes I sh- sort of shudder when I think about how many times I've been in the field in the last couple of years. Right. So one thing I do do, which I know you do as well, is while I <clears throat> think a lot of these kinds of more social, social, I'll call them social activism or academic activism, mm-hmm. um, I also have always maintained a basic, not basic, but a, a research program that in parallel, in parallel, yeah, okay, because I have the passion for it. Mm-hmm. And what has happened, like what's happening with you, is the older you get, the more established you get. Your students do more and more of it, right? And so sometimes I feel like I'm living vicariously through them when mm-hmm. you, you when know, they're out in the field, when they're so. out in the field, and when we're sitting there talking about their data on carbon dynamics and wetlands, and but that's okay because. I'm training students. They're teaching me, right? And it's resulting in some good work. So I, mean, I meant to ask you that actually about your what I perceive to be it's kind of at least a dual role. So on campus at University of Maryland, running your lab, mm-hmm. and then being the director here mm-hmm. to kind of segue towards you know the current day now. How does how does that work for you? Um, well, it's it's fluctuated. So mm. I would say. When Sysync first opened, almost, well, eight years ago, it was really hard because everything had to be, we had nothing, we didn't have a website, we didn't have policies, you know, Um, and I did feel like my research program for at least three or four years suffered, and by that, in part, I mean my students did, Mm -hmm. they didn't get much from me, I don't think. But what I've made sure I did was I'm surrounded by really, really good people here at Sussing. Um, I can't say enough about my colleague, Jonathan Kramer, who mm. right now almost runs the place. And people's policy. Yeah. And they're, they're excellent people. They're fun to work with. And so it, it's allowed me to have more time to mm-hmm. do the research. So just recently, I launched a new research project in part. Because of one of the postdocs at Sysync, we started talking and working together more and more. And he had colleagues at Virginia Tech. We submitted an NSF grant, which we got this past year. And that's just for my field-type research. So I don't know. It's his juggling act. I would say the hardest time was when I had young children. Sure. That was hard. And I remember feeling a lot of guilt. (laughs) Yeah. Feeling like, you know, despite what I said before about guilt, you feel like you're not with your kids enough you're not at work enough you know it's hard. yeah yeah and when it comes to like family and all those responsibilities i feel like those there's a unique set of emotions associated with that there is there is and um you know i look back wish i had a little bit more time but i don't regret what i i have done my boys i've got two grown boys now they're great we have a fantastic relationship so i was lucky mm. it's not always doesn't always turn out that way but um I really wanted both, so and I was able to get it. So, hmm. so I have to. I mean, one question that occurs to me because I mentioned to you before we started the interview that my father is an academic, mm-hmm. and that certainly. I mean, sometimes when people ask me, "Oh, like, why are you an academic?" Part of my answer is, "Oh, well, it just happened," and then they kind of smile at me and say, "Well, okay, like, but there's other things about your life." So you mentioned your boys. Were they do you th- affected by what was in the air? Do you think? Well, I was really desperately hoping one of them would become a scientist. One's an, yeah, en- okay. one's an engineer, the other is an IT person. Um, okay. But, yeah, no. I Were they affected? Sure. I mean, my husband's focuses on marine policy. He just retired about a year ago. So okay. they've sort of been around, for one thing, lots of water-type issues. Right, but, yeah. um, you know, a family that's interested in learning. But I think what what might be more interesting, given what you said about your family, is Mm. that neither of my parents finished college. One went for like a year. The other one, my father was a postal clerk. Okay. Um, My mother was mostly stay at home when I was in college. She did a little substitute kindergarten teaching or something like that. Um, Okay. And 
So my, where I ended up going really was sort of a discovery process. I didn't really know what a Ph.D. was before I went to college. Mm-hmm. That was I at went, Emory? That was Maybe. at Emory, and the only reason I could go there is I got a full scholarship. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't have that kind of money. Uh, I didn't grow up with, um, you know, well, with an academic environment at all. The right. re- The reading we had at home was like Reader's Digest, Abridged, and yeah. McCall's and Ladies Home Journal. Um, or like necessarily like a social model that you I can look at and say, I did not at oh, all. Oh, like that makes sense. I could do that. I can see this. I did not at all. Yeah, yeah. I did have very, very loving parents. Yeah. And they were very proud of me, but... Um, I really definitely felt like it was an uphill battle for me. I mean, when I went to college, I was pretty lost. I ended up doing very well, but um, I've always felt, if only I had really started reading a lot earlier and so forth. So anyway, there's lots of paths to get where we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so can trying to make sense of, of the decisions you made, I mean, when you look back, were there moments that felt really significant to you? Um, that directed you towards a PhD? Did you have like a someone at Emory that you connected with or was it simply like this, you know, falling in love with some of these ideas in a biology textbook or? No, I don't. Maybe it's hard to kind of. I don't ever think I fell in love. What I will say is I had um, an ecosystems ecology class with Donald Shore when I was at Emory. We did field work at the Savannah River Ecology Lab. Okay. Um, we were looking using cesium-137 to trace food webs, and that had an impact on me in the sense that not as like a role models or anything, I just love the idea of, of ecosystem modeling and, okay. and, and connecting components of ecosystems. And it, the organizational aspect of that, for lack of a better word, just resonated with me okay like how you can see an ecosystem being organized is that what you yeah mean by that yeah well the the kind of the the idea of connections and you mm-hmm. know i don't wouldn't have used this word then but fluxes between compartments right yeah yeah <laughs> and so in grad school i took an ecosystem modeling class i loved it um so in some ways it's ironic that i ended up doing community ecology before ecosystems in my own research but um so I would say that was really what got me started. And then this Woods Hole business, I think, is why I decided to get a PhD in marine science. But it turned out that in the end, you know, it really wasn't about the marine system. Like a lot of people, oh, I love the ocean. I love marine systems. Definitely. It's I know not, a lot of people like that, yeah. That's not my thing at all. It was more about the science involved. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. All right, and so now to, you know, another big decision. I think this was in 2010. What kind of made you think, okay, we, we, we're not doing enough in different ways, and here's an opportunity to create this new center? How did that moment kind of develop for you? Well, the, so I had been real actively involved in NCES, the Ecological Synthesis Center, um, for many years, and when they were no longer funded, core funded by NSF, NSF put together a workshop, asked Steve Carpenter to run it actually, on um, what should the next, what should the focus be next? Mm-hmm. And we pretty much all agreed it should be in the direction of environmental. So when NSF a year or two later posted a, you know, a request for proposals for an environmental synthesis center, I just immediately thought, no, now I really recognize we need to link. If we don't have social scientists involved in our research, you know, will it have any impact? I was getting much more focused on having an impact, that the mm-hmm. work actually matter, yeah. that somebody besides just a few other scientists might read the paper. Right. <laughs> and so I had worked sort of new hand professionally, Jonathan Kramer, who used to be director director of Maryland Sea Grant, started chatting with him about this idea. And also Bill Fagan, who's a theoretical ecologist at College Park, really got, got it. And he and I and John just started brainstorming. And then we reached out to Jim Boyd, who is a economist at Resources for the Future. Mm-hmm. And we spent, you know, months knocking around ideas about how this could work and... Um, 
So it was a very creative process. That's one of the things about yeah. writing grants. Everybody says proposals that, oh, I don't want to write another. Actually, it can be a really creative process. Yeah. We really didn't think we'd get funded. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were the only proposal that went in that was very explicitly linking social and environmental. So, um, so that's how it happened. Hmm. I mean, but it reminds me, so I once went to a, a geography colloquium at Dartmouth and the fellow was talking about um, an interdisciplinary project that had gone okay, but it didn't feel to him like it was really truly inter- interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And a point that he made that has really stuck with me is that the reason he didn't is because people didn't, there wasn't enough social capital really amongst the folks that were doing this. And he said that he thinks that interdisciplinarity really happens, you know, in in my business, we talk about bottom up versus top down governance. Mm -hmm. Well, so in that language, that's, we're advocating for kind of something that's bottom up, that people really need to be able to kind of engage with each Mm -hmm. other over time. And so when you say that you're kind of bopping around ideas for four or five months, that sounds right to me as a way to do this. So you act because I think, it, you know, one of the challenges of doing this bottom up is that it's costly in terms of like time and it sure energy. Is. It's really hard to actually like sit down uh, and try to internalize someone else's concepts and norms and understandings of constraints, et cetera. So, I mean, to me, that makes sense actually is, is kind of the better way to do it as opposed to, you know, when Larry and I were talking about interdisciplinarity, I, I mentioned this is not mine. I got it from somewhere else. Kind of a more baton model where you're kind of like, I do my thing mm-hmm. and then I hand it to you mm-hmm. and then you do your thing, which doesn't feel very interdisciplinary in a critical way. No. And I've had my early career, I had that exact experience in an NCs group where it was, a, I was the ecologist. Right. There was an economist, the expert on land use change. There was a hydrologist. There was a geomorphologist. It all started with, you know, the land use change component being passed to the hydrologist mm-hmm. who then said, okay, how will this affect flow? And then the geomorphologist saying, how does that affect stream channels shape? And it, and it was difficult and didn't work great. We get towards the end and the, the geomorphologist, I'll never forget him, Jim Pizzuto, who's at Delaware, wonderful guy saying, well, I didn't know that's what you wanted. So he was okay. he was coming out with, measures of things geomorphically that were irrelevant to the ecology. Right. And when I really got to that, so so I get what you're saying. In terms of the succinct process development, the critical thing was everyone involved had had the experience of understanding that the social components were critical to the environmental outcome. And they were also committed to service. The one exception would be Bill Fagan, who gave us brain power but made it clear from the beginning he didn't want to be involved in the day-to-day operations, yeah, and that right. was fine. Right. Um, well, like setting clear expectations, right? Like yeah, setting and yeah. yeah, and he was great on ideas, even getting into the social science literature, which is one thing that has you know a lot of people have said not a lot mostly behind my back, probably, why did you do that? You know, really, your career suffers. I'm sure there's going to be inevitable second-guessing or something. Well, but let me tell you, the learning experience has been phenomenal. Like, just what you alluded to, you know, bottom-up, top-down governance. I didn't know who Eleanor Ostrom was when I started this. So the first, during the proposal process, but then the first three years or four, I read like crazy. I read books, you know, one book on... Um, metacognition by Steve Fior, really yeah. understanding group dynamics and what an opportunity! That's exactly. So this is that that hunger for learning. I just yeah. like it. It's fun, and so yeah. this was a learning. And then the incredible people you meet once you start it. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, it's been fun. It has been. We also we designed the center. That this was our philosophy: an experimental center. Okay. where we we had a general framework we started under, but our goal was to maximize the um, effectiveness of, of groups to the extent we could help mm-hmm. and also productivity and accelerate the process. Yeah. And so we constantly experimented with ways to do that. Um, 
most of what we do, I think, is blind to the community unless the, the team has asked us to actually help with active facilitation. Blind to the community, which community? Well, the, that comes to succinct and okay. participate. Yeah, so yeah. we actually, we have a process that, that took us a number of years to fine-tune, but it is based on theories about group dynamics that involve... Um, ensuring certain things happen that will move, help move groups forward. Okay. And get th- we even have what we call gentle interventions, which we don't ever really say that to groups, but yeah, yeah. we try and follow to the extent we can what's going on in every group. And then if we see there's trouble, um, provide input in a way that is not like saying, oh, I see your group's having trouble. So can we, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually, people will start to- oh, it's usually just through conversations. And okay, this is fascinating. Okay. So we we really have been experimental and we tried some things that didn't work, but most of what we tried worked a little and then we improved it. And um, mm. some of them, if we talk about one individual component, it's about a 10-part, call it a process, the succinct process. If we talked about any one part, you go like, yeah, well, but it's the combination of those sure. that we think has made us effective. This is, I read on one website associated with you this morning about one of the goals of Sysync being advancing the science of team science. Mm-hmm. And this right. is kind of what we're talking That's about. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the word synthesis is, is in the name of the center. And actually, one question I have about that to kind of clear it up for me and for listeners is, was the call for a synthesis center? It is was. It, it okay. was. Now, you got to understand that synthesis centers originated and for a long time persisted as just meaning data integration centers. Right. It really wasn't about, um, and, and to some extent, idea integration, but it really wasn't about bridging disciplinary boundaries. Okay. And now where today, you know, places like NCs are also bridging di- in disciplinary boundaries, and more and more people are, but this was not at all the norm. I mean, yeah. when we started, in fact, I remember we talked about we called um, what we want to encourage actionable science. Mm-hmm. When we first came out and started using that word, we had some people you know, stand up at conferences and really challenge that, thinking that that meant things like, maybe, in part maybe because I'd been involved in like litigation, actionable. Right, right. And now, like we should all be activists Now that right word's now. thrown around everywhere. So the, everybody's grown in this regard. I'd like to believe we played a role in that. But, yeah. um, so you, would you say... Actionable science is a norm at Sysync. That, that it's oh a no. Value that, no! Oh no! Oh, I no. would not say that. Okay. This is so. For one thing, we are funded by the National Science Foundation, which is about fundamental research. Right. So we say that what we support is actionable but fundamental, and what that means is okay. that what you do has some implications for other places or other points in time. Got it. And, and, and the projects that are supported here span a continuum from highly actionable. So we had a group led by Leah Gerber that worked on helping fish and wildlife um, make progress in prioritizing which kinds of endangered species, listings, and so forth mm-hmm. they would spend their time on given limited budget. But we go all the way to extremely fundamental looking at things like the phylogeny of ecosystem services. Um, okay. The... 100% actionable kinds of centers, if you want to use that word, purely applied, are yeah. ones that typically solve point-in-time, place-based problems. Right. So, for example, University of Maine had a great, or still does, has a great center, and they work with local stakeholders to solve their prom- environmental problems and other problems. Okay, so that's a different type of that's center. That's not our role, yeah. Right. Our role is, for example, you working on a project where you begin to discover, recognize that there are that it's not just top down bottom up hierarchical or not kinds of governance structures but there are other fundamental categories that need to be used to analyze outcomes or something that yeah. and that would be picked up by a lot of different people okay so that's how we differ and that has been interestingly it's been a problem over the years off and on with our board <laughs> okay so we have our so we have two boards. One's our scientific review committee that reviews okay. proposals, and then we have us 
a senior um, external advisory board that comes in twice a year. And we made sure, well, our, our review committee's highly transdisciplinary, but so is our board. And some of those are so stuck on this idea of changing policy okay, sure. that they've challenged us repeatedly. Well, they'll come in and say, well, what policy did you change? That is not our role. Right, yeah. <laughs> our role is to help produce and support knowledge that potentially others could use. So it's, mm-hmm. in a way, there needs to be intermediary organizations that do that, and there are. <laughs> right, like boundary actors. Kind of, yeah, yeah, and when there are lobbying groups, there are NGOs, you know, World Wildlife and mm-hmm. NRDC, they have clear policy focus. We don't, that's not what we do, yeah. And so I imagine the proximity of Annapolis to D.C. is relevant in that regard, too. It is. I think where it's really helped is we get so much participation of people from NGOs and government. Yeah. So a lot of federal participants, um, very, very active. Some of them, you know, the NGO people leading groups, even, you know, some scientists from federal agencies. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been an advantage. Have you ever thought, has someone ever thought about writing up lessons learned from that. I'm sh- like people like me, right, who study like how groups work and how because it's really it's, it's it's not that different and some theoretically from the challenges that scientists face. We're trying to produce public goods, we're trying to work together, we're trying to figure out, you know, who's going to have which role with which rights and responsibilities, etc. That's what the fishers that I work with in the Dominican Republic all have to do. Yeah, so well we were pushed hard by our fourth year review team to publish something. And so we do have one paper out describing the process. For groups? Uh, the, the succinct process we the use, same, okay. those components. Yeah, to, yeah. And we have a short section on lessons learned. That was only after four years. Um, yeah, yeah. Sure, we get asked that constantly. We get asked, you know, tell us what to do. We, we get probably 20 at least requests a year to go to campuses or they want to send people here to to learn how do we do what you do and the here's the problem with that is it's not it's not any one thing you can't just list them and it's so some of it's informal it's rather very informal right okay much of it it's formal in the sense that we know certain types of things that have to be done but they have to be done in an informal way so it involves right. a culture and it involves the people mm-hmm. so it's not something that um just anyone can do. And I don't mean to imply we're special, but you have to have really interpersonal skills yeah. that you you consider work, you're working with the people that you're trying to help. You're not telling them what to do. You're not, it's it's just hard to describe. It really yeah, is yeah. a culture and different, different groups respond to different things. And usually you don't figure that out until you just sit and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And so we've really gotten to the point where we try and have a policy that one of the senior, one of the members of the leadership team sits in with the group for part of the time or meets with the leaders uh, periodically. We have some of those meetings are mandatory um, when you get funded. But our problem has been the demand totally overwhelms what we can support. And so we can't do that with every team. Sure. so we've been asked, for example, we helped the engineering directorate last year. They wanted to try and do some things with the engineering community. Uh, we're doing something with international programs at NSF. Both of these are NSF. And it's real funny. They I totally, when we talk to them, they love this, they get it. And then what they end up wanting you to do is like a one-day workshop or one-and-a-half-day workshop mm-hmm. to a huge number of people. So, again, it's about a process. It's not something you do quickly, and you go into a group and you say, well, if you do this, you'll be successful. Just a checklist, you'll be good. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it really strongly resonates with major themes in social science, natural resource management. I mean, one of the main challenges is, you know, how can we generalize from cases, right? If yes. so much of what makes something work is ineffable, informal, cultural, et cetera. I mean, that really is a huge challenge to the discourse of natural resource management. You know, when I, when I first, and this is a big part of what I loved about becoming Lynn's student was I had, 
you know, been reading textbooks on environmental policy, it'd say, well, you know, you've got your taxes, you've got your subsidies, maybe some cap and trade and some other things. But, there, you know, there was nothing in there about culture. There was nothing in there about informal norms and, and how they're ubiquitous and how they impact. Hmm. Lynn was kind of the first policy-oriented scholar that I really deeply engaged with that also really thought about human behavior and all these hard-to-measure things and took seriously, you know, another lesson from James Scott is, you know, frequently the most important things are the hardest to measure. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the decisions we made early on was that we were here to enhance the process and facilitate teams, not to study them. Okay. And we made a very active decision. We could have tried to do that, but we, we felt it was would be unethical okay. to sort of have a control group, withhold certain services from oh, them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we have never done it. We tried to get social scientists who's, who work on teen uh, science to do studies on some of the, you know, if groups would allow them to videotape interactions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We were never successful at that. One of the interesting things is, at least when we started, I would say it's still pretty much like this, the um, team science and the theories on team science, and, you know, like I mentioned, Steve Fiore's book and others, they're very theoretical. They're not. So we had to read those and then ask, what could we do with this, you know? Yeah, okay. I think there is a growing community trying to to come up with practical suggestions on this, but I we maintain that the best approach is developing this culture of support, interaction, and constant willingness to change of feedback, which is very consistent with, you know, informal governance yes, structures, as, yeah. as you referred to. Okay, yeah. We do now have a – we developed a graduate program. I'm trying to think how old it is. Six years ago, five or six years and in that, for that particular program, which involves much, so it means graduate students themselves can do synthesis projects, only graduate students on the team. And for that program, we provide a lot more support, and it's a little more formalized. Mm-hmm. And we do have Jonathan and my colleague Nicole Mozer here have a study going on related to that, which is involves surveys and documenting processes. and. Okay taking a lot of notes on what happens and interactions yeah Yeah. okay so So moving to you know the future then Mm -hmm. are there kind of remaining challenges that really um either get you excited or you think that are the most critical either at sysinc or in the broader academic community that you're trying to play this particular role in are there different directions you would be excited to see sysinc go in or do you really think it's it's about continuing to strengthen what you're already doing well? Well, so so yes to all of that. I, um, you know, NSF has a sunset clause on centers, which is 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so we're going into our ninth year. We'll probably have a little money for no-cost extension for a couple of years. But um, what I want to do in these final years is, and one of the reasons I responded so positively to what you're doing, is go beyond our walls mm-hmm. to get things out there. And that's one which means trying to serve a much broader audience that everybody can't come to succinct to right. help to build communities, which is what you're doing. We've talked yeah. extensively about this. People that do this kind of work feel isolated. Yeah. And hmm. so building communities, and there's lots of ways you can do that. In terms of moving beyond the NSF support, I mean, one of the ironies is, well, what succinct does is a public good, right? Mm-hmm doesn't really benefit it certainly doesn't benefit the University of Maryland mm-hmm. they actually give us almost the equivalent of our indirect support right back and it, we don't primarily support people from that campus most centers that are funded by NSF non-synthesis centers which is what most of them are mm-hmm. do directly benefit the campus both not just getting overhead but the research by the scientists. So many of those okay. centers get institutionalized and become part of the university after NSF quits funding them. That's unlikely with a center like this. Um, and finding other entities that would want to fund something like this, well, I have to admit, I'm not into development, so I haven't done a lot of work on it, but it's highly unlikely because it's a public good. Yeah. And who wants to support that? It's exactly the kind of NSF 
thing the NSF should do, which is new ways to do science. Let's see if we can help to kickstart that. Um, NGOs, philanthropists typically have almost a policy-related agenda that they want to happen. It's not just new ways to build knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not, and I'm also, I don't think all centers have to last forever. So I'm okay if we did have the funding to continue or to do something new. What I want to do and what Jonathan wants to do is to start working at the university level, at multiple universities, not necessarily University of Maryland. Okay. Because the culture there, while we're moving forward, the culture on most campuses is is not. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know what Dartmouth is like, but, yeah, you yeah. know, we're very stovepiped at Maryland. Most universities are. The money flow goes through colleges, which are disciplinary. Yep. And we have ideas about ways to slowly start to help, we think, change that culture. But that would be a totally new center, a new project. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that'll be what's next. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I'm having fun right now, too, doing wetland work. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. Got this new field site. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. Well, this has been really wonderful. I appreciate your time. Is there any kind of final comments or things you want to make sure that we cover before we sign off? You know, I don't think so. You've been really asked a lot of great questions, and it's been a lot of fun. Just encourage people to take those opportunities that are interesting when they come along. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast. <laughs>